This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all doing well. So fall has finally arrived. It's October 2nd, and the overnight temps are supposed to go close to freezing tomorrow night in many parts of New England. Many birds are still migrating, making their way south for the winter. At this point, I'm seeing many late migrating birds from Canada landing in my yard to take a break and eat some insects, before taking off again toward the neotropical areas. Being a gardener at this time of the year can be pretty rough. It's a little too cold and rainy to be outdoors, but we diehards are still out there planting native plants and also very soon seeds as well so they can experience the stratification they need during the winter. Once things get really cold, we will all be consigned to staring out the window and sighing at full-color plant and seed catalogs dreaming sweet green gardening dreams about the coming spring. So anyway, the good news is 2020 is almost over. As of today, there are just 88 more days until 2021 arrives. Hallelujah. As tumultuous as 2020 has been, there have been a few good things that occurred during the year. For one thing, the drought, as bad as it was, caused a significant reduction in the number of ticks. According to entomologists in Vermont, Diseases arising from ticks and other insects are down a whopping 42% in the state. State biologists in Maine are reporting only 626 cases of Lyme disease in residents, compared to last year's total of 2,167 cases. Cases of babesiosis and anaplasmosis, both tick-borne diseases, also saw significant drops. According to the New Hampshire State Veterinarian's Office, the ticks are dying due to lack of moisture. Ticks prefer a humid environment and usually thrive during the spring and summer, but this year's severe lack of rain has done a lot of damage to ticks. Here in New England, it's not unusual to walk your dog outside only to come back home and spend a half hour picking ticks off yourself and the dog. So it was a welcome relief to be able to go outdoors without worrying about contracting Lyme disease. Right now, I'm seeing the woolly bear caterpillar everywhere, and I'm helping them cross the street. The woolly bear curls up into a ball when confronted and remains motionless until it finds an opportunity to escape. I scoop them up in a cup and take them to the other side of the road, when it's safe, of course. The woolly bear caterpillar is the larva of the Isabella tiger moth. These woolly bears, which are aptly named because they do look like little tiny fuzzy bears, will be active until the late fall, feeding on native plants and trees. They will then go into hibernation in the bark of fallen branches and under leaves. The woolly bear can survive as far north as the Arctic Circle. According to entomologists, once cold weather strikes, the caterpillar freezes solid. First its heart freezes, then its gut, 
And then finally, it's blood. It has cryoprotectin in its tissues, a kind of natural antifreeze that carries them through the winter and then allows them to thaw out in the spring. By late May or early June, the Isabella moth version emerges and is a beautiful yellow, orange, and beige color with a wingspan of approximately two inches. There are many folktales surrounding the woolly bear. Some people believe that the wider the black band, the more severe the winter will be. Still others believe that if the woolly bear is seen traveling south, a really bad winter is at hand. Okay, some good news about birds and wind turbines. Unfortunately, wind turbines with the traditional white blades blend in far too well with the color of the sky and clouds and can fool birds, causing impacts with up to 600,000 deaths reported each year throughout the U.S. Not to mention the towers themselves, which cause impacts, along with the attached power lines that distribute the energy created by the blades, which cause the electrocution of countless birds every migration season. Despite all this, there is a spark of hope. New scientific research is showing that painting just one blade of a wind turbine black can significantly reduce the number of bird fatalities. The findings of the initial study, which was conducted at a wind farm in Norway, was recently reported in the Journal of Ecology and Evolution. And even better news, there are wind turbines without blades being invented as we speak. These new towers that harvest the wind without the use of blades could become the wave of the future. It's important to keep in mind that wind turbines are responsible for the deaths of some of our most endangered and threatened birds, like the golden eagle and the peregrine falcon, not to mention neotropical songbirds, spring and fall migration being the most dangerous times. Long touted as so-called green energy, a number of conservation experts are beginning to become startled and disturbed by the rising death toll of birds as more and more industrial wind farms are built in the United States. The American Bird Conservancy is urging the wind industry to improve design and rethink the placement of turbines. Keeping the turbines away from major bird migratory flyways can have a very positive impact on bird safety, according to the ABC. And now for our Voice in the Wilderness segment. Since 1993, when Sarah Stein published her book Noah's Garden, a manifesto against the absurdities of conventional American gardening, Homeowners have begun to question landscape companies who insist upon installing the same sterile lawn and non-native exotic trees, like the Bradford pear and the Norway maple, plantings that require signing a contract for constant care and upkeep by the landscape companies. Americans have also started to lend a jaundiced eye toward the offerings of garden centers pushing their neonicotinoid-laden cultivars and annuals which do little or nothing to benefit nature and in many cases poison wildlife. Stein's message was singular. Native plants know how to take care of themselves. Once established, they don't need fertilizer. They don't need compost. They flourish in plain old native soil. Some even thrive in, dare we say it, clay soil. And they don't require signing a maintenance contract for spraying with pesticides because any insect that is eating the plant or tree is supposed to be eating it as part of a symbiotic relationship that benefits the entire ecosystem of your yard. The $60 billion a year horticultural industry doesn't want to hear this, and they certainly don't want you to hear it. Plants that don't need amendments aren't going to make them any money. The horticultural industry entered into an unholy alliance decades ago with non-native plant growers and garden centers. What they have been pushing all these years is one of the world's biggest cons, 
If you can't get non-native exotic plants and trees from China, Japan, and Spain to stay alive in your backyard, then it's somehow your fault. You're obviously doing something wrong. It's called consumer gaslighting. But they will say, we have just the product for you. It will either come in a can, a bag, a box, or a signed contract, and it will cost you hard-earned money. But don't you want your yard to look like everyone else's? We have reached a point where the industry really needs to embrace new ideas. Modern-day gardeners want beauty, yes, but they also want trees and plants that foster the renewal of Mother Earth. We who plant native know the deep, magical stillness of a garden at dusk, that sense of peace that radiates through a habitat that is functioning as it should. It is the pulsing of the web of life. It tells us that all of the birds in our yard are well-fed, that the nestlings are healthy and tucked into their nests with their parents to stay warm during the overnight's falling temperatures, and that there will be plenty of caterpillars and other insects for the birds to eat the next day and the next. We go outside and garden because our hearts call us out there. Our souls long to connect to what is real and genuine. What could be more real than the soil under our feet? Not to mention butterflies dancing in the sunlight, hummingbirds sipping nectar from flowering vines, birds singing their hearts out with contentment, and those beautiful native blossoms that take our breath away. And we can have all of this without using petroleum-based fertilizers and toxic insecticides. The definition of gardening is rapidly shifting from forcing exotic plants from other countries to survive in a region and climate they are not accustomed to, to the role of shepherding. That is, shepherding the growth of native plants by adding natives to the backyard garden that directly benefit pollinators like bees, bumblebees, moths, and butterflies, all of which, of course, benefit the birds. This new gardening paradigm requires us to make some changes, yes, like loosening the chokehold we have on where each plant will be located and allowing Mother Nature to assist in the location and distribution. This means letting go, to some degree, of the idea of orderly and formal gardening beds and instead embracing the idea of a native cottage garden. We all know the surprise of planting a big stand of plants like native helenium, only to find the stand located five feet in the other direction come the following spring. Naturally, wind and rain played some part in their devilish migration. However, one can't help but feel chastised since the plants corrected course and reseeded themselves in an area they preferred much better. There's nothing like being berated by your own plants. Perhaps growing on their own for thousands and thousands of years without the help of humans has taught them a few tricks about survival. Let plants drift across your yard. Let them find where they are the happiest. I'll get off my soapbox now, but I will end with this. This new era of gardening for the sake of the planet will require each of us to keep an open mind, exercise some flexibility, be willing to compromise, and most importantly, to have a sense of humor. Okay, now let's talk about how to help birds during fall migration. Birds have been migrating for thousands and thousands of years. Birds have an innate sense of when it's time to migrate. When temperatures drop and days become shorter, they know it is time to be on the move. Birds migrate south because food sources like insects will soon be gone due to freezing temperatures. Also, leaves are falling from deciduous trees, preventing them from finding adequate cover and protection from predators. The weather plays a huge role. Drought and drought-like conditions can make water harder to find, prompting the birds to leave much earlier than normal for their southern destinations. 
The wind also plays a factor. Many birds wait for favorable tailwinds to carry them along during migratory flights. When winds are blowing in the right direction, millions of birds take to the skies to start their journey. Birds spend the better part of the summer eating as many insect seeds and berries as they can in an attempt to fatten themselves up for the long and exhausting trip south in the fall. Fall migration is complicated by the fact that many bird parents are traveling with their newly fledged youngsters, and these young ones are making the long and tiring migratory flight for the very first time in their lives. Close to 400 neotropical bird species will migrate to Latin America or the Caribbean, flying distances between 2,000 and 7,000 miles. It takes a lot of food to create the energy needed to reach their destination. Birds will be seeking food, water, and sanctuary along the way during their migration. Will your yard be one of those places? Here are some things you can do to help birds reach their southern destination safely. Songbirds can lose up to half their body weight during migration. Plant native trees, shrubs, and flowers to provide the insects, berries, and seeds birds need to fuel their journey. Dogwood and viburnum are loaded with berries in late summer and early fall. Fruit-bearing trees like apples and crab apples can feed birds long into the late fall and early winter. Plant native evergreens so late migrants from Canada have dense green places to hide. Plant native vines like the Virginia creeper, which produce sweet berries right at fall migration time. Provide a water source like a small pond or bird bath and keep the water clean. Plant trees and shrubs close together to create predator-safe areas for the birds to hide. Another important thing you can do is to keep your cat indoors. Cats mutilate and kill millions of migrating songbirds every year when they land in backyards to rest and look for food and water. Seriously consider keeping your cat indoors throughout the year or build your cat a catio, which is a caged outside play area. In this way, both birds and cats will stay safe. Make your windows safe for migrating birds. You can reduce bird strikes by up to 80% by investing in some inexpensive deterrents, like feather guards or kaleidoscape bird tape. Consider installing screens on the outside of your windows year-round, using a remote control awning on the outside of your window, or applying decals. In a pinch, you can use ivory soap and soap the windows to break up the reflection, or even apply post-it notes. Use tempera paint and create a masterpiece on glass. Anything that interrupts the reflection of the window will greatly reduce bird strikes, and that includes not cleaning your windows. Turn off the lights. You can prevent bird strikes by turning off both outdoor and indoor lights from dusk until dawn. Many birds migrate at night, using the moon and stars to guide them. Artificial light from homes confuses birds, causing them to fly into buildings and windows. Countless birds die of exhaustion and starvation every year during migration when they become trapped inside a maze of tall buildings in a downtown area, using up every ounce of energy they have trying to find a way out. Let your garden go. For the bird's sake, throw tidiness out the window. Don't deadhead your perennials. Leave the dried seed heads for birds to feast on. Leave your dead vegetable plants in the garden, as these also provide seeds and plant matter to munch on. Stop mowing a section of your lawn in late summer and let the long grass go to seed. This area will feed many migrating birds. Also, leave the leaves. Leaves hold dew and water after a rain, providing water to drink for thirsty birds. Insects hide under fallen leaves and are eaten by hungry migrating birds. Leave the pine cones and spruce cones on the ground where they fall. They are loaded with seeds for birds.
Build brush piles in your yard. These piles will provide much-needed protection from sudden cold snaps, heavy rains, and predators. Make the brush piles a permanent part of your backyard so birds can depend upon them. Another consideration, if you are going to put out bird feeders, be sure to provide foods that are high in fat, such as organic non-GMO suet, sunflower, and safflower seeds. Make sure to offer seeds that contain no artificial ingredients or flavorings. Supplement your seeds and suet with fresh fruits. Your feeders will receive a lot of traffic, so keep them scrupulously clean so you aren't contributing to the transmission of diseases between birds like salmonella and conjunctivitis. Prevent habitat fragmentation. Urge your town to preserve forested land and to plant native trees in open areas. Start openly questioning unchecked attempts at development in your region. Birds need all of the green space they can get. And finally, consider joining eBird, a fun online site run by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the National Audubon Society. In this way, you can read birders' observations of migrating birds throughout the entire fall season. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the belted kingfisher. The belted kingfisher is a diving bird and considered to be one of the most adept of the bird species when it comes to catching fish. The belted kingfisher is a smallish bird measuring a mere 11 inches long, roughly the same size as a robin. It looks quite clownish with its oversized head, large eyes, extremely short legs, and big floppy feet finished off with a stylish, blue-gray, spiky punk rock hairdo. But don't make the mistake of discounting this bird because of its goofy looks. The kingfisher is insanely fast when it comes to diving, and is so lightning quick, its prey has less than a second to react before being grabbed and gobbled up. This little dynamo has one of the best reputations for catching fish on the first try, rating right up there with the osprey and the peregrine falcon. Eternal vigilance is the key to their success. The kingfisher perches on branches above lakes and rivers, closely examining the water below for prey. While employing their high-speed dives, they use their nictitating membrane, which is a clear hood that comes down to protect the eye from water, injury, and debris. This extra protection allows them to keep their eyes open, allowing them to plunge into the water with Olympic-like precision. The kingfisher catches its prey in its long, sharp bill and then flies to a nearby tree and whacks the prey against a branch, knocking it out cold before swallowing. This bird prefers to eat fish, but will also eat crayfish, frogs, salamanders, reptiles, insects, and even berries. The belted kingfisher is an opportunist. When seeking an adequate nesting site, it looks for vertical earth and ledges along the edge of lakes and rivers but when able to find lodging near the water, will make use of human-created gravel pits, landfills, or construction sites. They dig long burrows deep into the walls of dirt, and these cavities can extend up to six feet into the soil. They use their feet to dig. In fact, a kingfisher has two toes fused together on each foot, creating a shovel-like effect that lends itself to easy scratching and digging in the soil. They are solitary birds until breeding season arrives. While the average clutch size of the kingfisher is five to eight eggs, they have been known to hatch and raise up to 14 nestlings in one clutch. While both female and male kingfishers are extremely territorial during the raising of their young, they have been known to share their nesting cavities with swallows, who will dig out small rooms along the inside of the kingfisher's tunnel to carry out their own egg hatching and rearing. Belted kingfisher parents stay very busy, as each youngster needs to eat at least a dozen fish per day. 
Multiply that by 14 nestlings over a period of 28 days until fledging occurs, and that's a whole lot of fish to catch. It's a good thing that fishing is their specialty. The belted kingfisher can be found throughout nearly all of North America. It migrates as far north as northern Alaska and can winter as far south as Colombia and Venezuela. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Now let's talk a moment about planting trees for butterflies, birds, and the planet. It's never too early to start thinking about the next growing season. You can make it a glorious spring by planning now, in the fall, to plant trees that benefit both butterflies and birds, and consequently the planet. New research published in the journal Science reports that trees are the most effective solution to climate change. Trees sequester enormous amounts of carbon, provide oxygen for us to breathe, prevent flooding by retaining water with their extensive root systems, give shelter and food to birds and pollinators, and keep communities cool with their shade. And let's not forget their awe-inspiring beauty. The U.S. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has just announced that if 1 billion hectares of forest are planted by 2050, humans could greatly reduce the effects of climate change worldwide. According to these scientists, there are roughly 900 million hectares, a hectare is roughly two football fields, of land on Earth that could potentially be planted with trees. Researchers say one of the countries that could make the biggest contribution by planting trees is the United States. As a result of this study, environmentalists are urging American homeowners to plant one new tree in their backyards, a tree that is native and provides shelter and food for both butterflies and birds. Native trees provide the food, and this includes nectar from blossoms, leaves, and sap, and shelter, which includes leaves, branches, and bark, needed by butterflies and moths to lay eggs that later develop into caterpillars. These caterpillars contain the necessary protein birds so desperately need to survive and raise their young. Butterflies and moths are also pollinators, collecting pollen on their legs and wings and distributing it from tree to tree and plant to plant. A backyard with trees provides the ideal habitat for butterflies and moths to forage. A tree's bulk blocks high winds from tattering and damaging fragile wings, allowing them to complete their life cycle. Butterflies and moths depend upon certain tree species for survival. Here is a list of trees that fit both the native and butterfly beneficial categories. Oak trees. According to Douglas Tallamy, author of the book Bringing Nature Home, How You Can Sustain Wildlife with Native Plants, oak trees provide shelter and food for an astonishing 534 species of Lepidoptera, all of which are delicious to birds. This includes the polyphemus moth, the white-marked tussock moth, the io moth, along with dagger moths, red-banded hair streaks, inchworms, and giant silk moths. Willow trees. Willow trees offer protection and sustenance for nearly 500 species, including commas, viceroys, red-spotted purples, morning cloaks, hair streaks, sphinx moths, and the dreamy dusky wing. Cherry trees. Native wild cherry, especially black cherry and choke cherry, provide for 456 species of butterfly and moth, including the spring azure, white admiral, coral hair streak, tiger swallowtail, wild cherry sphinx, hummingbird moth, imperial moth, and the cercropia moth. 
Birch trees. Birch trees sustain 413 species. This includes the tiger swallowtail, luna moth, northern pearly eye, morning cloak, chocolate prominent, and the arched hook tip. Crabapple trees. Crabapples support 311 species. This includes the gray hair streak, the striped hair streak, along with eight species of sphinx moth. Maple trees. Maples, which includes box elders, support 285 species of moths and butterflies. These include the rosy maple moth, giant leopard moth, and oval base prominent, along with the luna moth. Pine trees. Pines offer sustenance to 203 species. This list includes the imperial moth, pine sphinx, pine looper, large purplish gray, pine elfin, and the ester moth. Elm trees. Elm trees are making a surprising comeback and support 213 species. This includes the double-tooth prominent, the eastern comma, question mark, and the morning cloak. Hawthorn trees. Hawthorns provide 159 species with sustenance, including the gray hair streak, red-spotted purple, viceroy, and the hummingbird moth. Linden trees. The linden or basswood tree provides food and shelter for 150 species, including the question mark, dagger moth, checkered fringe prominent, Prometheus silk moth, and the tiger swallowtail. Walnut trees. Walnut trees provide food and shelter for 130 species, including the blinded sphinx. Providing for the entire annual life cycle of the butterfly in your yard is vital. From egg to larva to chrysalis for the butterfly, or egg to larva to cocoon for the moth. To this end, surround your trees with native shrubs and perennials that butterflies prefer, along with a shallow water source, wet soil for puddling, and please don't be put off when you see holes chewed in the leaves. This is a part of the cycle. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And now for more of my personal story. I finally found the Bird Rescue Center and carried the bird to the front door. I was greeted by a woman who smiled and thanked me for delivering the bird. Then she told me to bring the bird inside, and I followed her to what she called the triage room, where injured birds were given their initial exams. That, she said, is a magnificent frigate bird. I looked at the bird in awe. What a wonderful name, I thought. The bird was soaking wet, but it had black feathers and a strange orange-red pouch. She explained that frigate birds spent their entire lives flying over the open ocean and came down to land only to lay their eggs and raise their young. They soared on air currents high above Florida beaches. Large but graceful, the male frigate bird has a large orange-red pouch on his chest that it puffs out to attract a female. She asked me to hold the bird while she gently stretched out one of its wings. She showed me the area where the wing was fractured and swollen. She then proceeded to wrap the wing up in a bandage so the fracture could heal. She took the bird from me and I watched her place it in a large cage with an infrared lamp for warmth. 
Then a man walked into the triage area and put two cardboard boxes down on the floor near the examining table and walked out. I could hear scratching inside the boxes and knew they were the next patients. I no sooner looked away than another man walked in with two more boxes. The arrival of bird patients did not stop the entire time I was there. I have to say, I was amazed at this woman's calm and gentle demeanor. I was pretty sure I would be freaking out from the pressure of so many incoming patients. But she worked steadily with each bird, first diagnosing the problem and then addressing it medically. I wanted to stay there the rest of the day, and she seemed to read my mind. Why don't you take a walk around and see the birds we have in our permanent displays? I nodded and stepped outside. I was overwhelmed at that point. I knew I wanted to do what she was doing. After I had toured all of the outdoor enclosures, I stepped back inside to say goodbye. I asked her if she needed any volunteers. She nodded and handed me a sheet of paper to fill out with all of my information. I finally felt like my head and heart were aligned. I was ready. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.